And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Ruminations of Red Rum, the rock and roll, the Ruminations Radio Network. Uh, it's me, Brendan. You know this voice. Um, we got a, we got a special one for you today. I am here with you know I, I've been going back and forth on how I wanted to introduce you. I, I was going to say writer, and I was like, no, but he's also a director, but he also edits and he also animates. So we have. A certified jack of all trades here with us today, Charles Piper. Charles, how hello. You doing? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Glad to have uh, much talk of crazy stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, obviously, you know, uh, I want to get this out there. Um, as of recording this tomorrow, uh, a feature film that you wrote the story to and the screenplay. Um, along with a couple other uh, wonderful people, um, it drops on on Shutter tomorrow, uh, and that mm-hmm. is Destroy All Neighbors. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, you know, a lot of times uh, studios, you know, there's the whole January February idea with movies where studios just just put their shit out at the beginning of the year. Um, oh yes, <laughs> this is not one of those films. Uh, c- can you just tell me as as a writer, what does it yeah. feel like to have something that you've put at this point almost ten years into? Um, Correct. How does that feel? Not only to have it released, but on Shutter with Tom Lennon and Kumail Nanjiani and all these amazing people in it. It is like an out of body experience on multiple levels within my brain because, yeah, I started writing this for the director Josh Forbes about now ten and a half years ago. It, w- it came out of actual experiences that both of us were dealing with really intense, scary neighbors at the time. And long story short for this intro, it was on those projects that never seemed like it would actually get made and uh, took forever. And now I've been a fan of Shudder since Shudder started and more, more, more on a bigger time. I am kind of the guy I am in terms of writing and directing because of Alex Winters freaked as a kid. Oh, okay. so the fact. You know, the fact that I wrote something in that vein of humor that appealed to him enough to come back, let alone Jonah Ray, who I'm a fan of his comedy and MST3K and everyone involved. It's crazy. Uh, But it's also the two other writers brought so much to it and we can get into it. So it's I feel like I'm the skeleton at the center of the body of Destroy All Neighbors. But Josh, the director and the other two writers brought the flesh and the meat and the muscles and yeah, it's it's wild, but it's it's exciting. It's the culmination of a decade of work, and it's it's bonkers, man. It's just been bonkers. You know, I I, I feel like uh, the twenty twenties are it, it, the twenty twenties is the time for movies that have. Been, are you familiar with a movie called Malibu Horror Story? It rings a vague bell, but I don't know if I know who did it. Uh, uh, Scott Sloan is the writer director. Oh, okay, um, yeah, I, I know that name. Yes, it's uh, yeah. that was a movie that was completely shot in 2012. Uh, oh, found uh, found footage mockumentary, and then mm. it just got stuck in development hell. And now, obviously, it doesn't sound like your film got stuck in development hell. But I, I like this idea of these old film, not yeah. old, obviously. You know, well, what I, mean. I mean, old enough. No, this wasn't in development hell. It was just in hell. Until Shutter bought it. So, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It's like, yeah, I feel like a lot of us have been gardening for a long time and the plants mm-hmm. have finally started to blossom. 
And uh, in terms of what you're saying earlier, like the January dumping ground, this film was supposed to come out in October of 2023, oh. but uh, understandably and correctly, Shudder pushed it back because they didn't want to drop it during the writers and actors strike. If we had released it and none of us could have promoted it, it just wouldn't have been worth it. So, yeah. but I'll tell you when that happened after already 10 years of waiting, I was like, no oh, God, but <laughs> you know, January, may, 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 may. I, I'm excited to start a new year off with a big new project come what may. Mm -hmm. So no. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, I I completely in hindsight understand why why they did this why 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 Shutter um pushed it so uh b before we get into that I I kind of want to talk about you a little bit because like I said that's in the intro, great I know a lot about myself it's wild <laughs> you won't believe it um in the intro I I said you know writer director editor animator <clears throat> uh, I I don't I I don't necessarily want to go chronologically but. Uh, I, I want to kind of start, what got you interested in, because do, do you see yourself, when you describe yourself to people, do you say, I'm a writer, I'm a director, I'm... I say I'm a writer-director, uh, I want to direct more, I'm, I, I'm moving towards being, I will, let me put it this way, I've done more writing than directing, just because it's very hard to get features off the ground, mm -hmm. but I'm sitting on about seven feature screenplays I've written for myself to direct that I hope I will get to maybe start pitching around because of Destroy All Neighbors. Yeah, I'm a writer-director, but I, I wanted to be a stop-motion animator when I was younger. I've, I still work within stop-motion. Uh, I do a lot, but writer-director, yeah. I do a lot. <laughs> uh, so uh, obviously, you know, ha having a... a the first, it, it's a Shutter. Is it a, or an original? Or it is a Shutter original. Uh, Shutter. They bought the script outright, so they funded it uh, along with RLJ Entertainment. They kind of work hand okay. in hand financially. But yeah, in terms of branding, it is a Shutter original, straight across the board. We okay. did not make it, and then have Shutter buy it. When Alex Winter came on board, they were like, "That sounds crazy. Let's see that script. <laughs> we're paying for this." And and we we will talk about you know some of the because everyone in the film is fantastic, but I do want to talk about some of the bigger name talents. But we'll of we'll course. get there. Um, so what what got you interested in film? Is is there because I I hate to ask people like what's your favorite horror, your favorite scary movie? Because that's such a, a well, I'll say this much. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I can go there and we can backtrack. My favorite film of all time right now is The Night of the Hunter uh, the, with Robert Mitchum, uh, Charles Lawton. It's, I just, I'm obsessed with it. I even worked for free a couple of years ago in the art team of an independent feature length film that was being shot out here because the director, who's an older man, an Academy Award winning documentarian named Terry Rawlings, when he was a teenager, his first film gig out of UCLA in the late 50s, he was the second unit director of The Night of the Hunter. So I literally was on that film just to hear stories. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, The Night of the Hunter is Alex Winter's favorite film, which I did not know until this project. And there is a moment in the film where, as Vlad, after intimidating the main character, he walks away singing the song that Robert Mitchum as the evil preacher in Night of the Hunter sings. And that was something that he brought to it. And that was just a delight for me. But in terms of horror specific, I mean, possession, 
That's probably, I go to possession all the time. But in terms of what got me into it, it's kind of a mystery. I came out of the womb a horror kid. I was a monster kid from day one. And luckily, or, you know, just coincident, who knows, but my parents are theater people. So they were very supportive of my horror comedy inclinations ever since I was a child. I started shooting horror comedies on the VHS home movie camera with them in my living room as a child, literally. And uh, they're still very active in the theater. They flew out from New Jersey to be at the world premiere at the Arrow uh, on Tuesday night, which was adorable. But they themselves aren't horror people. My mom was a classically trained ballerina turned writer, director on the stage. And my dad was a set designer for the stage. And they met, and that's what led to me. So who knows why? I, I just like monsters, and they supported me, so I stuck with it. That, that is a, that, that's a, a lot more concise answers. And that's a lot more of a concise answer than you people are usually just like, uh... I watched Nightmare on Elm Street and I was like, I could do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I Sometimes I think like, wow, I've been into this since day one. I've stayed the course. How good? And then I have days where I'm like, wait, I haven't changed since I was six. Is this a problem? <laughs> but so far, so good. I don't know. It's I have an obsessive drive and a focus. And, uh, you know, my, my, my work is kind of ebbed and flowed. I do a lot of stuff when we can get into this. Destroy All Neighbors is really wacky and silly, and it's the combination of a lot of other people who are even sillier and wackier than me. But my stuff, yeah, it's typically a little darker, but I like the extremes. I like stuff that's extremely dark or extremely funny, and kind of the balancing act between the two is where I like to creatively live. Okay. Is is there something about uh, the genre specifically that, that attracted you to it, or, or has it always just kind of been an obsession? It started as an obsession, a visual thing. I just, I liked monsters. I liked as a kid seeing stuff that wasn't real, but looked real. Uh, I started reading Fangorio when I was in the first grade mm-hmm. and I became obsessed with special effects. And as a child, I was like, oh my God, there are adults whose jobs is to make monsters. That was what I wanted to do. Uh, and my parents being supportive, we went to our first Fangoria Weekend of Horrors movie convention and I want to say 92, 93. Mm-hmm. I met Tom Savini. There's a photo of me as a little kid with Tom Savini. He's like, what the fuck is this guy over here? <laughs> but uh, it started as an obsession. And then as I grew older and the real world had its horrors and nightmares, I started to realize horror is interesting, not just for the visuals, but it could be a metaphorical reflection of deeper things within culture or within the mind and I'm in a good place now, but my 20s were entirely consumed by health problems and medical issues. So it was like a weird prophecy foretold. Like I grew up liking David Cronenberg, right? And then I ended up in a David Cronenberg film for my young adult life. And now I'm kind of out the other side of it. But uh, yeah, I horror is a beautiful umbrella that can carry something as silly and intentionally dumb as destroy our neighbors, destroy all neighbors, or something as deep and serious as, you know, crimes of the future or something. And I like all of it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I will say, uh, I did hear, I, I heard a little slip there. I've been accidentally calling the film because I love the game Destroy All Humans. I don't know if you ever played it. Um, no, a lot of people think, so I, I, I'm an old fashioned man whose brain is even older. The title is a joke of Destroy All Monsters because I loved Godzilla films growing up. Oh, That's what we're okay. referencing. I, I know those video games. That's not 
where I was coming from it, but a lot of people are like, oh, it's like that video game. Or they're like, oh, cool, it's a reference to the comic in The Lost Boys, Destroy All Vampires, or... Oh, I didn't even think of that. Uh, there's so much. But for me, I just like Godzilla, and I really didn't think we'd get away with this title, because Toho is very litigious and controlling. I thought we'd get a cease and desist. Like, honestly, the whole film is a miracle, but the fact that my original joke title is 10 years later, what ended up as the actual title, unbelievable. <laughs> um... So, uh, since you brought up body horror, uh, I think it's kind of a, th this is kind of a good place to start. Um, umbilical Jim. <laughs> what the fuck? Hell yeah. It is. Let me tell I, you. Yeah. Please tell me, please. <laughs> so for all those not in the already popular lane of knowing what umbilical Jim is about, which is, I assure you, there are dozens of us, uh, Umbilical Jim is a short film I made in my junior year of Emerson College back in Boston. Okay. It was the first time we got to shoot on color, 16 millimeter film. And it was a group project, and uh, I, I was the writer-director of it. It started as an idea from uh, this wonderful friend of mine from back in the day. Her name is Sarah Budd. She was the cinematographer on the film as well. She came up with the initial image. She just I don't remember where it came from. We were just doodling in class. She was like, wouldn't it be weird if there was a young boy still connected to his mother by the umbilical cord? And it just clicked in my mind. And I was at a point in my life where I was trying to push past my uncomfortability in general. I was a very socially awkward, shy young man, teenager, what have you. So I decided to use this as sort of a, uh, to push body horror that I felt deeply and really get it out there. It was my first attempt at going deep and going psychosexual and going strange, let alone my first time shooting on film with the cast and crew. And the we filmed it. We shot all of it in this really cold basement of a house in Alston in Boston. And it was a whole weekend shoot. And we sent the footage off to a processing factory in New York City that had a really good rate. And those dumb, dumb chumps, I'll tell you what, they forgot to put the signature required mark on the UPS box. Oh, so the box no. that had the negative, the mini DV transfer, oh. the entire film was left on the front steps of my apartment. At the time, I lived off of Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and some random person stole the package. It was the end of November. They thought maybe it was an expensive the entire film was lost. I lost the entire semester. The film was gone. It was brutal. And what we had to do was reorganize the shoot and reshoot the entire film from start to finish in the first weekend of the second semester before the other people had needed access to those cameras. We had to do this all with our own money, our own funds, and we ended up with a better film because we had done it before. So okay. we knew a little better what we we're doing. And I was like, because initially the film twos had to be like four to five minutes tops, but this became a year long project. So I was like, let's let this breathe a little. Let's get really mm -hmm. uncomfortable and linger in it. But the trickiest thing was the actress who played the mother wasn't available for the second shoot. And I was panicked. And then Here's where it gets real Freudian, and maybe you noticed from the end credits, but my I, mother... I, yeah, I gonna... Okay, here we go. My mother, who 
is a stage actress, performer, writer, director. She was like, I'll do it. I'll do it, Charlie. <laughs> and initially I was like, there's no fucking way in hell. My mom is going to play the mom of this ding dong umbilical gym. And then I like, I was like, no, this makes perfect sense. She's known me her, my whole life because, well, that's how it works when, with, <laughs> you know, uh, but also she knows my sense of humor. She knows mm -hmm. my directorial style. She came on, did a great performance. And yeah, that it became an infamous, disturbing film that caused a little bit of ruckus at Emerson that year. And I'm still very proud of it to this day. I, it's just a college short, but I think it has all the building blocks of everything that I'm still trying to explore and push forward in my work. No, and I, I everything you said makes makes complete sense. Uh, you you referred to it as as psychosexual, and that is something that. Uh, that I that that I picked up and I wanted to discuss because mm. uh, it's pretty you know, blatant. <laughs> we and uh, I think uh, what what I appreciate most about it is there's I don't know if this is what you were going for when you shot it, but there's mm. that fake out scene where uh, when Jim is sitting on the couch with his mother before he uh, mm -hmm. spoiler alert uh, uh, before he uh, cuts the umbilical cord. Yeah. Um, he reaches into his pocket thinking, you know, he's thinking he wants to separate himself from his mother to be mm -hmm. with the next door. It, the next door neighbor was Sarah Budd, correct? Yeah, she, yeah, she's a cinematographer. She came up with the idea and she played the next door neighbor girl. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he's sitting there thinking about her and he reaches his hand into his pocket with pants that had surprisingly very deep pockets from what it looked like. Cause he got like up to his forearm in there. Um, and his hand is in his pants for, I would say, just a little bit longer than it would take to grab a pair of fucking scissors. Um, yeah, that's, I, that's I, I think intentional. That was okay. Yeah, it was, I don't, I, this was a long time ago. I don't remember if I directed that actor, Phil Hamilton, specifically, but we had talked about the underlying text of it all a lot. He was on the same page and we were in this space. It's like, yeah, he's putting his hand down his pants. Yeah, it, I wanted to make the audience pretty much my whole life, I felt very uncomfortable. And now it's like, if I can just make other people feel as uncomfortable <laughs> as I used to, you know, there is justice in the world. So yeah, that was, that was intentional. Um, it, and also there, there's the, uh, the scene of him kind of, uh, not, not to be too grotesque, but he's kind of almost fingering and stroking the umbilical cord. Yeah. Um, oh Yeah. And uh, there, there's just there's so many small moments in it where uh, a lesser filmmaker wouldn't have even thought of it. But it's mm. just those small things that I think make Umbilical Jim not just extremely uncomfortable to watch, um, but incredibly effective. I appreciate that. And I thank you. Uh, you're pretty much the first person to ever talk to me about it ever in, in a way. So I made that I want to say that was 2007, 2008. You know, that was I that was so long ago, I had to burn DVDs of it to physically mail to film festivals. I don't think it got into any. And then it was so long ago, there wasn't even HD capability when I first put it up on Vimeo. The version okay. you saw right before the pandemic, I got it rescanned in 2K from the original film. So the version you watch, you know, it's higher quality. But in, originally, that thing existed off the mini DV transfer in like 720p, if that. And just it got lost in the sauce. Just nobody saw it. And yeah, but 
I like it. I, I appreciate that you like it too. And uh, I'm very proud of it, especially because, you know, it, it, we had to do the whole damn thing twice. The whole thing mm-hmm. is such a nightmare. Um, and it, it, it doesn't, uh, knowing that information, it doesn't feel uh, rushed. It doesn't feel forced. It, it feels like, uh, like you guys had kind of all the time in the world and, and mm-hmm. you took the time to perfect each shot. So I, I think hearing the backstory of it makes it kind of even more impressive in my eyes. Thank you. That's really kind. I appreciate um, that. So going from the uh, experimentalist avant-garde <laughs> umbilical gym to something that I... It, I kind of regret watching these two shorts back-to-back because it was such a, a tonal shift. It kind of gave me, uh, you know, uh, emotional whiplash a little bit. Um, morning cloth. It, oh, boy. It, yeah. It is. It's dark. It's moody. I just got coffee with the lead actor of Morning Cloth before this, Dave Child. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, it's... Good close it's, friend of mine. It says what it needs to say, hmm. and then it disappears. And I, I think that's kind of um, indicative of I, I what I think the short is about. Um, mm-hmm. can, you, can you just talk to me a little bit about Morning Cloth? Yeah. So Morning Cloth is a short film I did about a decade ago here in Los Angeles. Uh, it stars a close friend of mine, this wonderful actor, comedian named Dave Child. He's part of this really wacky comedy dance troupe called Liquid Feet. And it's him and two women, and they dance to television theme music. It's about as ridiculous as you can get. But I've been close friends with Dave since Emerson. We met at Emerson. We were in the same comedy troupe there, this troupe called Chocolate Cake City. And I just always thought, he's so big and bold and comedic, but I thought if I could use him in the most quiet, subtle like less is more that would be really unique because he never gets a chance to do that and morning cloth it's kind of it's a film about inherently mourning and death and cemeteries and it kind of it came out of two things i was washing my face in the bathroom one day and i looked at it and i saw my little face cloth said barden's motel on it i was like what the hell is this i had no memory of having been to a barden's motel let alone taking it So I called my parents. I was like, did you guys maybe when you were here leave a cloth or something? Because, you know, they come out and visit me sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they had a vague memory that maybe they'd gone to like a a motel named Barden's, but we're not sure. I think it just accidentally got packed in a package from like who knows when. So that was a weird thing. And then I was aware of that location in Los Angeles, those very long stairs. That is a very strange spot. And so I just kind of, I wanted to do a film that kind of felt like a little dream based off that moment of me going, what the hell is, what is Barden? Who is this? And I just kind of let it, let it breathe. No, it, it, it's, a, it's what I think three, three and a half minutes long, uh, roughly. Yeah, it's very it, short. It, it, it's incredibly effective. and. Uh, I, I think it shows, uh, not, not only God this is going to, I need to get my, my lips out of your ass, but, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it not only shows how, how, uh, how, how competent you are as, as a filmmaker to be able to, to switch, um, sub genres, but I, mm. I, I guess I don't have a, a second part to that to that comparison, but no, it, it's it, and I don't want to use the word impressive again because it sounds like mm. I'm just kissing your ass. But it, I, I like to see when filmmakers 
try things that are different. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't work, but you know, yeah. at least you tried and, and, and it does work. So it, that's, that's the positive side of it. Well, thank you. And I, I feel it. And again, it's like extremes, right? I'm going to do something that's extremely bold and silly. And then something that's extremely quiet and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, morning cloth was that. It was just about quiet sorrow, really. And uh, there you go. Um, so going back to to wacky and weird. Uh, yes. One of one of your uh, one of your shorts made me uh, spit take uh, very hot coffee when I watched it, <laughs> and, and that's uh, the the Scrapsville Follies. And oh God! Specifically, the line <laughs> "I'm still in the womb." I, I fucking. <laughs> I have lost my obsessions. It. I return to so <laughs> Scrapsville Follies. This is a little short. So I'm friends with this amazing experimental stand-up comedian named Ian Abramson. He's in Chicago now. He lived in L.A. for a while. He also acted in a short of mine called uh, the the Sunshine Blues, Return of the Something. Anyway, he during the early days of the quarantine, he created a weekly live version of saturday night live where he did every character in every sketch <laughs> and to give himself time to change out of it he commissioned his friends to do little shorts so the scrapsville follies was an experimental short i did as part of saturday night quarantine and this was maybe a month a month and a half into quarantine lockdown so this is 2020 and it was just I had built those puppets for a stop motion film that never got made. I still want to make that. But I had these puppets. There wasn't enough time to animate them. So I was just like, they're goofy. I'll just shake them around. And it's all my voice and it's sped up. And it was just a way to release the terror and confusion of being trapped in quarantine. And none of us knew how long we'd be in there. And some of us are still in there. Yeah, um, it's true. Uh, <clears throat> the... Uh, one of one of your shorts, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I believe it was an entry for the ABCs of Death Two. Um, yes. Oh God. Yeah. Mastication. M is for mastication or mandible. Oh wait, no. I think I I wanted it to be M is for mastication, and then I saw that someone else already took it. I was like, that fucker. He also <laughs> knows words. So I changed it to M is for mandible. Yeah. That that is what that was. I. I, uh, my, my biggest horror is, is tooth horror. I, I mm. wrote a script that, that ran the festival circuit, um, and it was only about tooth horror, the entire fucking mm. thing. And, uh, I actually had to, I had to go back and watch, um, Emma's for Mandible twice because mm. the first 10 seconds of it, just the up close shots of his teeth clicking together it made me yeah. so uncomfortable i'm i'm not fucking with you i got up and walked out of my room wow it, yeah well it, it yeah, hurt I, me so much <laughs> so i i i i think i have a thing for teeth and close-ups it's jan spankmeyer is one of my biggest influences in terms of stop motion and he does a lot of close-ups of mouths and and chewing and my friend kurt krober he's in that short he's in a couple of my other shorts he has really gnarly teeth and he was like, yeah, let's freak people out. Get as close as you want. And, uh, God, I had to clean up my kitchen. I've shot that in my own apartment and, uh, it was a lot. Of, it smelled, there was a lot of, it felt so weird to just go to the grocery store and buy all this food just to know that it's going to be chewed and spat on the floor. And 
my f- the, the person who plays the dead body, he was another Emerson friend of mine who was also in Chocolate Cake City. And the, the cinematographer of M is for Mandible was Phil Hamilton, who plays Jim in Umbilical Jim. So oh my it's kind of... I have I have a group of people you I try to use as I do yes, mm. and I I I think that that not only does that work in your favor I I think it makes uh, a team a team that that constantly collaborates I, it makes them closer and and you guys can mm. understand each other without having to say anything yeah I I feel like they are my film family and uh, for me the most exciting part of filmmaking is really being on set and the creative collaboration and when you find people who oscillate on the same wavelength it's just such a beautiful thing and it can be rare you know i was out in los angeles for half a decade trying and struggling and working on things and you know uh being dicked around or finding people i thought were mentors who totally weren't but eventually i found my people and i work with them as much as i can and moving forward yeah, I, I I know who my go-to folks are. Who who are my guys, right? I, yeah, who are yeah yeah. Lock the gates, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um. So, uh, two more shorts that I want to talk about, and then we will get to uh to sure. the main. I'm I, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to. I I feel bad. No, for talk about my shorts all day. My God, no one's ever actually been this interested. It's very cool. <laughs> um. So, uh, again, tonal shift change here from M is for Mandible. Uh. Now, I I believe you were. I don't want to say only because that's obviously mm. terrible to say. Um, you you were the the director on this project. Um, mm. when we dance, which I believe stars uh the guy that plays Chevy Chase's dad in Community. Yeah, yeah um, yes, that's Larry Cedar. He's a wonderful character actor, and I met him through Dave Child, my friend, who is in Morning Cloth. It's all interconnected. He also. <laughs> He was in the gremlin suit in the Twilight Zone movie segment. He was he was the fucking gremlin in the 80s. Oh, he was the one attacking John Lithgow in the film the, version. The plain one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh directed by, uh, what's his face, of Mad Max fame. Uh, Larry Cedar is lovely. I want to work with him again. So it is a little bit of an outlier, and it needs a little bit of explanation. So before that, I did my biggest short film to date. It's called Malika Straka. We can go into that in a bit if need be, but I went the film fest circuit. That's very psychosexual. It's body horror. It's puppetry. It's creatures. I, I have a feature length screenplay version of that. That might be what I do next if all goes well. But I had finished it. That was a film that took over five years to get off the ground. I wasn't going to do it till I had enough money to pay everyone on the cast and crew properly. So there was a huge, and I had a lot of health problems that kept going on and pushing it. Anyway, that film was done. It was going through the fest circuit, but it meant the whole year, year and a half on the fest circuit, I had nothing else to do. But at the world premiere of it at FilmQuest in Provo, I met this wonderful writer. His name's Kenny Wright. Wright the writer. Great last name for a writer. And we hit it off. And uh, he approached me a couple months later. He's like, I, I, I like Malcolm Straka. I like your directing. Would you ever be interested in directing a short I wrote? And I'd, I'd never directed anyone else's script before. And I thought it would be a lovely collaboration and kind of just a creative test for me. Can I do this? Can I, you know, read the room and move to a different vibe? He sent me three shorts and to his surprise, I chose when we dance because it was the most tonally different from anything I'd ever done. It's this bittersweet supernatural romance. And, uh, I like the challenge of it being a short film, but having a big 1960s costume party flashback sequence. And so we did a little fundraiser and we shot it. 
I directed it. The script is Kenny's. We we changed it a bit. And there's a little bit. I put a little bit of me into it, but it's it's his mm-hmm. story, and uh, it was totally a fart in the wind in terms of the film festival circuit because it was so different. All mm-hmm. the horror festivals I got into, they couldn't take it because it wasn't horror enough. And then it's about it's a it's a aging boomer love story. Uh, so I'm proud of it. I like the acting in it. I think it shows I have versatility. But nobody saw it, and it didn't. It didn't help Kenny and I in terms of progressing us forward the way we wanted to. But as a feather in my cap, I'm proud of it, and I think, you know, we shot that in like two days with like oh okay, barely any money, all in one house, and uh, we pulled a lot of favors. And, yeah, I think it's a lovely piece, but I don't think anyone has seen it other than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, I, I lied. Now now there are two more shorts because mm. um, I, I, I apologize. Um, so in, in a, uh, correct me if I am wrong again on this one. Uh, so th- did you meet um, uh, Gabe Bartolos when you guys came together for um, the exhibit Pepto-Abysmal? So that was one of the first things I worked with him on, but not the first. So oh, okay. I, this whole thing with Gabe is lovely, and I'm so happy that he continues to be someone I work with because you know I grew up watching his monsters and admiring his work. I want to say about 12 or 13 years ago, I applied to be a painting assistant at his special effects company, Atlantic West Effects. I got the job. And they were doing this giant miniature of the entire county of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It had been commissioned by an eccentric billionaire uh, Dubai oil baron. And he <laughs> wanted it to be put into the floor of his house in Beverly Hills and covered with plexiglass, like a James Bond villain. He wanted yeah, to be able to yeah. walk over L.A. The whole thing was lit fiber optically from within the miniature, so it would change colors over the course of the day. They had been painting and developing this for about a year before I came on board. So my job was just painting the little buildings every day. But Gabe and I hit it off immediately. The very first day I walked in, I recognized a casting of a sculpture by this insane Polish artist, Zukalski, who I love. And Gabe had been working with his family's estate to build these replicas. And, you know... Gabe, there's a lot of young horror fans and horror nerds and effects people who work there. But I came out of the gate swinging, knowing this deep cut art reference. So Gabe was like, oh, okay, oh, (laughs) you know, and we just hit it off. And so luckily, about a month into that, the eccentric Norwegian artist Bjorn Melgaard commissioned Gabe to do a short stop motion that he wanted projected in one of his galleries. This thing is called Antwerp. It's so graphic and disgusting. It's not public on my Vimeo. It's, it's stop-motion torture porn with highly realistic puppets that Gabe designed. Is, uh, is, there, is there a way that that can be viewed anywhere? I could maybe send you a sneak link, but it's really, it's graphic. Okay. Like, okay. you do not know uncomfortability until you're animating <laughs> stop-motion torture dungeon fisting one frame at a time, okay? In the heat of a North Hollywood Sun Valley summer. My God. Uh, but Gabe, it just, it just, he was like, oh, Charlie, you've done stop motion. How about I design these puppets? You animate them. You know digital editing better. Uh, it became a collaboration. So I did that. And then about a year later, Bjorn came back to us with Pepto Abysmal. So that was the 
That was the second stop motion I worked on for Gabe, but it was more or less the third project because I had worked at a shop. And I worked on a shop off and on for a couple of years. So by the point that the Malakastraka short script felt strong enough, I reached out to Gabe. I was like, hey, I would love for you to design the puppets in this short. And so he ended up doing those puppets. And then when Destroy All Neighbors came up, he was my number one go-to guy. So I was like, hey, Josh, Alex, Jonah, it's got to be Gabe. And that's how Gabe got on board. So yeah, but Gabe and I go back over a decade. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> so let's, uh, let's talk about the, the big short film. Um, mm-hmm. I, did, I, did that play at Panic Fest at some point? Yes, it did. Yes, it okay. did. I want to say t- 2018, maybe 2019. It did the festival circuit right before the pandemic. Okay, yeah, because I when I rewatched it um, to prepare for this, I was like, I've seen this. And oh, I, wow. I knew, I knew, so it, it must have been Panic Fest. Um, I was there for Panic Fest. I flew out for that, and it was, I met a lot of great filmmakers, but they packed it so tight together, there was no time for Q&As. Mm, so yeah. none of us really got to talk, but it just meant all of the filmmakers went right out into the lobby and started getting drinks, and I'm friends with people to this day from Panic Fest. I, I really like that festival. Where where did the idea for that short come from? Because it's oh, it's boy. it's very uh, I would say nihilistic almost. Mm. Mm. Um, so Malika Straka dates back once again to Emerson College. I was in a creative writing class uh, taught by this excellent writer named Jonathan Papernick, and I was I was uncomfortable, and I was doing all these silly short stories. Pretty much Jonathan called me out on my bullshit. He was like, you're trying too hard to be clever and silly. You just got to be raw. You got to be real. Like, make yourself uncomfortable. And so I was like, okay, Mr. Papernick. Uh, (laughs) And so I was back home in my Harvard apartment. This is all around the same time as Umbilical Jim falling apart. And I was just trying to kind of zone out and let ideas come to me. And out of the blue, I had the image of a woman sleeping by a creek in a bathing suit with a crawdad crawling towards her. And I just like, holy shit. I was like, that's creepy. And I thought about it a little further. And what's creepier than the idea is that me as a young man came up with that and it's inherently perverse and sexual. So I was like, the horror isn't that there's a crawdad crawling towards her. The horror is that someone's watching her and not waking her up. Mm. So that evolved into a short story. We're talking like four or five pages. And that short story was the germ of Malakastraka. I wrote it for that class. Always liked it. Set it aside. Never thought it would become a short film. Almost a decade later, here in LA, I was like, wow, you know, I think I know enough people to make a film based on that. I have effects people. I have wonderful cinematographer friends. Ava Shore, who shot that. She is one of the best cinematographers of our generation. I love her. We go way back. Uh, so I kind of resurrected the idea. And even so, yeah, it took half a decade to get that short film made. And you just, when it takes years to make a short film, especially when you live in LA, you just feel like a crumb bum. I felt like a piece of shit. So the concept of the, the main character becoming a struggling writer, it became that because that's what I was. And let me just be blunt here. I haven't had kids. I love kids. I'm not afraid of kids or babies, but the fear here, I was genuinely trying to explore the scariest thing I could. And for me, it's 
uh, a parent transgressing against their child. And also just in a, in a more abstract, being trapped in a relationship that's wrong and both parties not doing the right thing. So those are sort of the germs of the idea that became Malakastraka the short. And it's, I didn't think you were going to go as far as you did. And then mm-hmm. I would say the, the, the final stinger mm-hmm. um, is, uh, I was thinking you would go there. And then throughout the majority of the runtime, I was like, no, he's not going to do it. And then I was like, oh no, this is about a, yeah. a woman that has a parasite child. And then I was like, it is oh, a bit of a switcheroo nope. and that's intentional. I, again, I, I did this like five and that got, this came out in 2018 and I filmed it like 2017. So I was younger. I was hungrier. I wanted to come out of the gate swinging and I wanted to fuck with people. I wanted to trick them. I wanted to lull them into this cutesy bootsy. Oh, this is a silly puppet horror. And then bam, fuck you. Oh, you like this? This is real. This is bad. You know, and so many people have been like, oh, it's like your eraser head. I love eraser head. I love David Lynch. But for me, I kind of feel like this is my anti eraser head because it's explicitly set in the real world. Mm-hmm. And there's no happy ending because of what the what the dad, what the father does. You know, he does not transcend into the, you know, unlimited beauty of meditation and the, the lady in the radiator. Oh, no, like, fuck you. You did that. You're horrible. Deal with it. So, yeah, I wanted to disturb people and kind of trick them. And I think a lot of people felt that. <laughs> yes, yes, very much. Um, uh, I, uh, pardon me for not asking, uh, what, did, what did you major in? I, I was a film major at Emerson, but okay. because of the nightmare of Umbilical Jim getting stolen, then having to reshoot it on my own money, I got so burnt out on filmmaking that I, from that moment on, I focused more and more on stop motion animation. I took animation classes. I even took an experimental film class at MassArt taught by Luther Price, RIP. Uh, so by the time I graduated, moved to LA in 2009, I wanted to be a stop motion animator solely. But I was in this weird nebulous place where all the animation people looked at my resume. Well, you were a film major. I'm like, yeah, but I, animation. And then all my film people never thought of me for live action jobs. She's like, he just wants to do stop motion. It took uh, years of reconfiguring what people knew me for. But yeah, I am a film major, but I love stop motion. I mean, hey, that, that's fair. Everyone has that, that thing in, in their um, in film that they like. And I uh, personally, I'm terrified of stop motion and claymation. I love it. it it makes me so it uncomfortable. Is, yeah, no, people have a phobia. It, it, it's, it's a literal phobia, and you're very aware of it. And uh, speaking toward Destroy All Neighbors, the stop motion, the claymation intro credits, like, that's me. That dates back to the very first draft I wrote 10 years ago. So well, I'm uh, the one who did, brought that. Did, and, did you, you did that? No, I'm saying I brought that oh, element oh, to it. Okay, okay. And the, the animator who did it, his name is Rich Zim. He's pretty much the best claymation animator in America. He's one of the lead animators on Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant mm. Peach. He did the Gumby remake in the eight, late 80s, early 90s. He also, I during the quarantine, I produced a stop motion short called Everybody Goes to the Hospital. And there's some close-ups in that that he did. And that's when I first worked with him. So then I brought him back for this feature because I love his work. Okay, fair enough. Um so now, now I think is the time that we have to talk about it. Uh, destroy Let's all neighbors. Uh, funny, gross. Okay, I I, th- I think uh, my review for it on Horror Press was uh, destroy all neighbors is a concert of chaos. Um, I like that. It is. It it is such 
a fun movie. It 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 takes itself seriously when it needs to, and then it, when it needs to pull back and be gross or be funny, it does, and it doesn't ever lose. Uh, it, it doesn't ever lose its footing or its pacing. Um, and now you mentioned this earlier. Um, uh, so the story and the script um, yes. are by you, uh, but also Mike Brenner and Jerry. Uh, Mike Brenner. Let me let me explain this because um, I just want to be on the record here publicly that. The three of us all wrote individual drafts of this, and as such, we deserve to have the written by credits. Okay. That's not what happened due to confusion within uh, the WGA. That's mm. all else off the record. Yeah. But for the record, I did the first drafts. Mike Benner did the second drafts by himself, and as such, deserves a written by credit. Okay. And then Jared Logan came on years later when Alex Winter came on board. And he kind of cleaned off the digital dust the script had collected. And he's a wonderful stand-up comedian. So he brought in all the kind of callback jokes and kind of tied it together. But yeah, the credits say what they say. But I just want to state the three of us wrote it individually. And it is as much their film as it is mine, if not more so. Okay, fair enough. And and thank thank you for clearing that up because it's... Mm -hmm. um, I I can understand how that could possibly be be frustrating. Not not it's only it's a bummer. For you, I feel but I feel I feel for my friend Mike because like he brought the prog rock to it. That's the whole uniting form, and he doesn't oh, get. He? Yeah, my initial draft. The guy had a different. Uh, Jonah was a. Uh, he was trying to create and finish an epic graphic novel, hand drawn graphic novel, because that was kind of more where I was and. You know, okay. Jonah, he's an actor, he's a comedian, but he's also a punk musician. He does that Weird Al punk rock cover band. So he came on board, but he was like, how about we kind of make the character more like me? And then Mike was brought on by him and Josh. And Mike, look, I love prog rock. I, I love weirdo music. So even though I didn't bring it, like, I was like, oh my God, that's, of course, we got to do this. This is great. So there you go. Creative collaboration, the name of the game. <laughs> Um, I think that's what we'll have to call this episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, so, uh, the um, one of the other writers, and uh, I, I should have written this down, uh, has written for syndicated late night. That's talk yeah, shows. I think I want to say that's Mike Benner. Well, no, or okay. maybe that's Jared. I know Mike Benner wrote on Bob's Burgers and I believe Gravity Falls, which is one of my favorites of all time. And uh, okay, in, yeah, Jared Logan maybe was the late night writer because that, that makes more sense yes. with his stand-up comedian stuff. Yeah. So, and I, I think that's kind of uh, a lot of times, and, and you've probably noticed this, when there's uh, a film that has three or four writers, it can feel muddy. It can feel like mm -hmm. everyone wants to make sure that their thing um, yeah. gets into it. And I... After, you know, looking at your credits and the other two writers' credits, I was able to see the weird, goopy, Lovecraftian, nihilistic yeah. nightmare yeah, yeah, that yeah. you formed. I was able <laughs> to see, um, obviously not, I, I was able to see Bob's Burgers level right. comedy. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. able to see those bits of late night syndicated yeah. talk show comedy. Mm -hmm. And at no point did it feel like anybody was fighting to have their voice It's heard. It's a beautiful uh stew a synthesis of all of us i this, this film existing is a statistical impossibility improbability <laughs> and let alone that yeah i think what happened was the three of us wrote individually so we weren't stepping on each other's toes and each of us there were years in between each of us writing it 
I started writing it one-on-one for the director, Josh Forbes. I spent maybe two, two and a half years as the sole writer, just developing it with Josh, because both of us had horrible neighbors. That's how this all started, is we were just trying to get this crazy neighbor. We were just trying to just get it out on the page, right? Mm -hmm. So it was my script, and unsurprisingly to you, my script was a little bit more bleak, a little bit more about the mental and physical decay. It had a darker ending, blah, 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 blah. And we got Jonah involved, and it was a handshake agreement. He was like, I like this script. You can say I'm attached, and whenever you get money, we'll do it. Do, do, you, do you mind saying real quick what mm-hmm. your original ending was? <sighs> I, or you, you, don't, you don't have to. Let's just do that off the record because I don't want to okay. seem like I'm tooting my own horn. I think the okay. final result is beautiful and happy. But yeah, I'll tell you later. Uh, okay. But so Jonah came on board, and he was like, I love this. Let's revise it to fit my character my personality more so then they brought on mike mike did the prog rock and dude we pitched this this script was sent everywhere and we got rejected by everyone you know the mo we the typical notes we got this is too bloody to be funny or we got this is too funny to be scary but the biggest note we got and this is i want to say seven eight nine years ago a lot of the notes was like this is very 80s. Nobody likes the 80s. 80s vibes uh, aren't in. <laughs> this and this was like a year or two before Stranger Things came out. And then suddenly everything was 80s. <laughs> 80s is cool again. Mm-hmm. But so it just kind of, the script died the death and we kind of put it aside. I focused on Malika Straka. Josh Forbes focused on his music videos and his work. And then Jonah Ray got Mystery Science Theater. So he was doing that for years on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And it was really, it was the quarantine that resurrected this project. Jonah got a fire in his brain to bring the project to life again. And when he signed on, he hadn't even met Alex Winter. In the interim years, he had met Alex Winter probably through a podcast or some comedy thing. They'd become kind of friendly. So he sent Alex the script. And our thought was, if he likes it, maybe it could just be Alex Winter Presents. Just use his name as a producer to get the ball rolling. But he had just finished being on Bill and Ted 3, which had kind of resurrected his love of prosthetic character acting. So he kind of, he liked the script. He initially didn't want to do Vlad because it's a lot of work. And they kind of talked about it. And then maybe within a week, he was like, you know what? I do want to play Vlad. I don't want to just produce this. Produce this. I want to play Vlad. And then bingo, bango. Shudder was like, oh my God, Alex Winter back as a crazy character monster guy. Let's fund this. And then Omicron happened, and it all got pushed. And then it got made uh, last summer during the two-week-long heat wave where every day was 100 to 110 degrees, let alone in a warehouse with (laughs) set walls, with lights, with Alex Winter in like 40 pounds of rubber. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, and then Alex Winter went, went, because again, the script had settled. They brought on Jared Logan, who did the kind of final comedy polish. Okay, fair enough. Um, how how involved were you in in the filmmaking process? I would say a little bit more than normal for someone who is a writer, let alone one of three, because the director, Josh Forbes, and I, we're close friends. We okay. met years ago. So and you, you trusted him? I trusted him because I knew he was on the same comedy wavelength, and I also knew, like, I kind of wrote this for him. He, I love Evil Dead, too. But he loves Evil Dead, too. You know what I mean? So, like, I was writing to kind of push towards his humor, 
So I was like, once he got it, I knew he'd run with it and crank it to 11, for better or for worse, depending on where your comedy horror energy lies. But yeah, I, I wasn't on set a lot, but I was there a couple days, and it was insane. Uh, I mean, uh, you're, you're seeing right now, but for the podcast, people just listen to it. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, the set designer who built William, the main character's apartment, they painted it the same color as my actual apartment, green. <laughs> and like, that was a coincidence. So I walked onto a set that looked like my apartment where the real thing happened. And it was just, it was like a dream come true. And then here comes Alex Winter as Vlad, unrecognizable. Oh, hey, Charlie. Oh, here we are. You kidding me? It was beautiful. And it was hot as hell. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I was, uh, the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, I was watching and I was like, I, I want Alex Winters to show up. And then, I know, uh, I know. And then I, I'm watching the credits and I was like, wait, Public Defender? So when I rewatched it, I was like, Oh my God, he yeah. actually plays like a normal looking person. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Did, did, um, so you said the idea was kind of based off of some bad experience you guys yes. have had with neighbors. Uh, was the, the design of, of Vlad, was he always this kind of um, ogreish, yes. uh, so, vaguely Eastern European? Well, uh, okay. So with that, I had a really bad neighbor lived right behind me here and his apartment is a mirror image of mine so we shared walls he okay. blasted edm and 80s music all night long he has a coke problem he was an alcoholic it was a nightmare and this went on for years so i had years developing this script as i dealt with the actual guy uh in the earlier versions of the script it was a little bit more unclear he called himself vlad but we it was there was dialogue like oh, I don't even know if he where is he from is that his name like is he well, just I, I, to thought, scare I thought you us? meant your neighbor called himself flat oh good. no no that was made up no I <laughs> so because of Vlad and you know I was going off Vlad the Impaler and all that mm -hmm. uh, uh, just to kind of lock onto a place Alex kind of ran with that and the screenwriter's like well he calls himself Vlad let's push it towards this Eastern Europe who knows thing and and. Uh, Alex, when I feel like he started with a Bela Lugosi impersonation and then okay. cranked it over the top. And but yeah, Josh Forbes, the director from day one, he was like, it can't just be an actor. It has to be like in makeup or exaggerated. Mm -hmm. He has to be not just the worst neighbor. He has to seem like he's almost impossibly gross. So that's where that started. And he was very gross. Um, uh, so I, I think you've kind of answered this a little bit, but uh, how, how does the final product feel to what you have initially, you had initially envisioned it as? It's interesting to me because I explicitly, inherently, I know which bits are mine and which bits are mm -hmm. the other writers. So it's like watching the world premiere the other night was insane because I'm just, it was also the first time I'd ever seen the finished film. I had seen the very early rough cut and little bits and bobs, but again, I wasn't the director, I wasn't the editor, so I wasn't privy to all this. So it was like watching this. Also, Jonah Ray kind of looks like me, and they dressed him up, and the set looked like my apartment. So it's kind of it weird. Is, it's very weird. It's it was like I, my friends were joking with me earlier today that it was like the end of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, where he's watching the film based off his life, but mm. someone else is playing, you know, paging Mr. Yeah. Herman. It was like paging Mr. Piper. That's what it felt like to me. It was, uh, it's nuts. It's like I say, it's a synthesis. It's 
Well, look, even with the prog rock, Man Man has been one of my favorite bands since I was in college, since 2005. I, Josh and I, years ago, we made a sizzle trailer with footage from other films to reflect what we wanted Destroy on Labor to look like. We okay. used Man Man music in that trailer. <laughs> and then all these years later, not only did Ryan Katner and Brett Morris, a Man Man, do the soundtrack and all the music inside it, he ended up playing uh, Ryan Katner, the lead singer of Man Man, played Caleb Bang Jansen, the asshole musician <laughs> in the film. And that bit, that bit is so funny. It's Caleb Bang Jansen. Thank you. Yeah, he really <laughs> cranked it up. So just even the things that weren't me were me. It got the music I wanted. We got the special effects artists we wanted. The claymation intro sequence is there. The characters are exaggerations or alterations of mine, but it's just, I don't know. It's, it's mine, but it is also 100% Josh Forbes and the other writers. And I mean, Alex Winter and Jonah Ray weren't just the actors. They were producers on it too. So they, oh, yeah. it, was, it was a lot. And I am just happy to be a part of it, you know? Well, I'm I I and I know a lot of other people are happy that it came out. Um, how uh, can you, if you know the answer to this, uh, hmm. can you talk about how um, uh, Tom Lennon and Kumail Nanjiani got involved mm -hmm. with this project? So Kumail is one of Jonah's best friends. They've known each other forever. They were co-hosts of the Meltdown, which was a comedy show here in LA years ago. So. Hmm. It really, I, Kumail came on board, I think, just because they're friends and he, it would be a fun cameo. And I like that it harkens back to his earlier cameos in Portlandia, where he always showed up as the board worker at every single store or thing. So he just came on board and yeah, they just riffed and improv. I think they spent, I wasn't on set for that day, but I think they spent like half a day just riffing. And it's oh, so great. That, that and whole it, scene is improv. I mean, it was in the script, but they just but, cranked okay. it up. They, yeah, yeah. And then Thomas Lennon. They just, uh, I think that was just the casting director was like, how oh. about Thomas Lennon? And Josh is like, well, I love that. And I, I you know, I love Reno 911. I met him briefly. I, I went to set uh, one of the days he was there and I just think he's so sweet. And, you know, he brings his comedic history with him. And he just, I think he's believable, even in that over the top that he wants to be nice to Jonah, but Caleb Bank Jansen is their only paying client and he just has to <laughs> accept it and roll with it. So I, I think he brings a lot of, uh, just sweet awkwardness to the film. Um, and so uh, a name that we have mentioned um, already, uh, Gabe Bartolos, but also mm -hmm. um, Bill Corso. Uh, th yeah. those, are, those are two names that I think uh, genre fans who are really deep into practical mm -hmm. um, horror um, are, are, fam are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I know, and the audience probably at this point knows the answer to this, um, but uh, how do you feel with how they've they handled these grandiose ideas that that you had in your head from the beginning they knocked it out of the park they i mean i always wanted gabe uh that the fact that we got bill corso as well not only does it create a beautiful continuity for alex winter because he's been friends with bill and they've worked together i want to say since the first bill and ted you oh, know okay. bill corso bill corso is an academy award-winning effects artist yes. and then gabe gabe is the all-time deep cut secret legend god for me <laughs> so it's like having the best of both worlds gabe designed the look of the creatures and characters helped with the application and bill did the painting and he's one of the best like he painted veins and you know just honestly i wish we had more close-ups in general to we have a lot but Knowing how good it looked to my eyeballs, I just, mm -hmm. I want more of everything, you know? And yeah. 
what we got away with with barely a 20 day long shoot it's crazy we had we had probably to make this more comfortably we probably should have had like another week but it was just a matter of the schedule and the time and the money Mm -hmm. we the art team the effects team everyone went above and beyond on this it was it was very tough but yeah the fact that it came out as well as it did is a is a miracle and shows just how good these people are and and it it looks and it feels uh i get to say what i said uh earlier about umbilical gym uh it doesn't feel rushed it feels Mm. like you guys had all the time in the world to to craft together this really just weird fucking movie well thank you i appreciate Um, that and uh yeah it's nuts it's crazy that it exists at all let alone with to the caliber it does and a lot of that is Bill Corso and Gabe Artalos just across the board. Uh, so uh, one of the questions that I love to ask uh, mm. screenwriters, and because I I love inspiration, I I love you know advice. Uh, I've written some scripts that have been on the festival circuit. Some have won uh, unproduced screenplay. Some have been nominated. Some I've been uh, laughed. I out relate of the, to you. I I. Freeway. Dude, my God, don't get me started on Film Freeway. Uh, Well, not so much. It's not Film Freeway's fault, but a lot of there's a lot of predatory, almost false. That's a whole another topic there. They need better oversight. But yeah, yeah, no, I've done the mid-level genre circuit with screenplays and then with shorts and you learn a lot uh, for better or for worse. So as as someone who has experience in that, and uh, I'm comfortable saying at this point that your experience has led to a success story because you have a film on Shutter in very few people can say that. So what, what advice or, or what, what would you recommend? Um, not, and I think we can actually expand this a little bit, not mm-hmm. just screenwriters or aspiring screenwriters, um, animators, editors, people who have all these grandiose ideas and they're afraid to go out and do it because they think it might be too much work for one person to take on. Well, that's a great question. I think it's a matter hmm. You have to be comfortable feeling like a piece of shit for a very long time. And I know that's hyperbolic, but that's what I felt. I felt like a complete crumb bum, like a goblin crawling around Hollywood. You know, I'd I'd get out of my apartment, you know, and I had years where I couldn't even get a short film off the ground. I'd go around the corner and I'd, you know, feel panic about having to spend 15 bucks for a goddamn muffin and coffee. You know what I mean? Like, with that being said... You have to f- trust your gut and stay true to yourself and whatever small amount of money you can live off. Learn how to, you know, like I- I've had weirdo day jobs off and on throughout the years. And I don't know, you just don't bend to exterior stuff. Like, look, again, I started writing this a decade ago. I was told nobody likes the 80s. Nobody likes horror comedies. And at the time, in terms of the economy of filmmaking, they weren't wrong. If I had changed it to try to follow some whim of what was popular at the time, it would have fallen apart. So if you can just stay true to yourself and eke out a living however you can, that's really, I don't know. But it's also, this film getting made is a miracle. Any film getting made is a miracle. And yeah, I just, I always wrote, I I just have to stay obsessive, I guess, and wish for the best. And no, this felt like an albatross around my neck for a decade. Malika Straka was in half a decade of an albatross, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't have like specific advice because it's all so unique and individual. Unless you are super lucky in the right place at the right time, you get those eyeballs, or 
you have a sudden windfall of money you can put into a short, like mm-hmm. it's, it's, I don't know. I stayed true to myself since day one. And that meant for most of my life, nobody was interested. And now I have this window of opportunity maybe where because of this, I hope I can get more attention onto stuff I want to direct myself, such as the Mal- The short version of Malika Straka is already on Shutter. Hell, maybe the feature Wait, might end it? up there one day. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I didn't it's, even notice that. It's part of an anthology series called Beyond the Dark. Oh, yes, okay. Yeah. So what that was is that was, that was done, I think they're just called The Horror Company. They wanted to create a first season of an anthology. So what they did is they just went to their favorite shorts from the Fest circuit across the years and like can can we put you on it so that was outside of shutter and then shutter i i think bought that season so okay it is there i think i'm episode two or three okay so but yeah just i don't know people have to do their own thing but also accept that it takes time there is no such thing as an overnight success or maybe there is but it didn't happen to me so <laughs> <laughs> um so uh this has been I've I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Um Thank you. before we wrap it up, is there anything else about uh about destroy destroy all neighbors you wanted to talk about, get out there, any any fun trivia you wanna gosh throw I, into the ether? I don't know. I just wanna uh, shout out to the art team again. All of them hit it off the park. Everyone involved in this film did so much with so little, and it's just staggering and uh, uh the cinematographer is excellent the editor uh, hank friedman he edited a lot of the comedy bang bang tv show he moved to germany now so he's in another complete country entirely but yeah i just everyone went above and beyond on this and i'm just happy about it i'm happy for josh forbes you know josh forbes he's full of ideas he's got crazy adhd and the film is a metaphor for that the film is about going for as much as you can creatively, maybe outside of your own means, following obsession to a negative point. Like, I'm not saying, you know, Jonah's character in this film is like an exaggerated version of every creative's worst self. And that's implicit in the film. If he was just a little less selfish, every single person around him could help him out or could be a friend. And he's just too single-minded and he ends up punished for it. And with that said, I feel like it's relatable, but also sort of a cautionary tale. I don't know. I just, I think, I just hope people enjoy it. And if people don't enjoy it, thanks for watching anyway. We got ya! Can't take that back. Ha! <laughs> 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 um, uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, Destroy All Neighbors, It uh, by the time this will come out, uh, in a few days, so uh, destroy all neighbors is out on Shutter. Um, mm-hmm. Your 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 story, your trials, your tribulations, your your stolen packages, um, your your tenacity, your never giving up. Uh, I think it is not only an, an inspiration to me, but it should be an inspiration to a lot of aspiring filmmakers out there. And I think the the success of destroy all neighbors. Um, isn't you know yeah it's good for shutter that's good for them but um at the end of the day that's what filmmaking is all about <laughs> i agree thank you yeah, so i i couldn't fit the word rock and roll in there so um this will do but uh but that being said uh this has been a very very special episode of ruminations of red rum the oh boy uh the beheaded next door neighbor of the Ruminations Radio Network. Uh, if you like what we're doing here, uh, please uh, uh, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We're like 
30 reviews away from being able to become tomato certified and that would be dope uh we'd love it follow us on uh twitter even though twitter is dead it's of red rum <laughs> yeah twitter fucking sucks now yeah um and uh go uh go check out destroy all neighbors seriously check it out um and uh so again charles piper thank you so much and uh I not only speak for myself, but everyone when I say we cannot wait to see whatever you do next. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that too. <laughs> All right. Stay spooky, folks. Mm-hmm.